So this morning as we continue to work through the Bible together in a year, we are in the book of Jeremiah. And so we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 1. Lord willing, we're going to consider the entire chapter this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. This is the word of God. Oh, sorry, it's, just, it's just nice to hear all the pages turning. Uh, I'm just listening to that. Might not be the, the most readily accessible spot. Uh, just, just go to the spot that's not normally opened, and that, that's where you'll find it. This is the Word of God. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. 
against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, the, the word of the Lord uh, comes to the prophet again and again. And we have that word recorded for us here. And so we would ask that in power and for the glory of your name, that your word would go forth as it really is, the word from your mouth. Father, I pray that you will open our minds and open our hearts, give us receptive hearts, shed your light into our minds, illumine us, help us to know and understand, and help us to cherish. Lord, help us of, of many, many things that we have to be thankful for uh, this weekend. Help us to be thankful for your word, that you are a God who has spoken. Uh, you, you did not need to... Uh, breathe out words that were inscripturated. You did not need to give us your word, but you have. And, and we, we thank you for this morning, uh, that you have given us something more precious than bread. Uh, you have given us something more precious than water, even, even more precious than life. For in this revelation, we find you. We find the living God. We find how to know you through Jesus Christ we find eternal life. And so we ask that this morning your word will simply be what it is and that we will perceive it and appropriate it in response. For all of those who will be traveling uh, this weekend, Lord, I just pray that you will grant them a measure of safety and that uh, wherever people find themselves, uh, they will find themselves conscious of uh, being loved and cared for. And for that reason alone, uh, to be drawn into giving you thanks. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I come no more to make you laugh. Things now that bear a weighty and a serious brow. Sad, high and working, full of state and woe, such noble scenes as draw the eye to flow, we now present. Those that can pity here may, if they think it well, let fall a tear. The subject will deserve it. Those are the opening lines, as you know, poorly delivered, but those are the opening lines of the prologue to Shakespeare's Henry VIII. It's not a half-bad opening prologue to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is full of state and woe. Jeremiah is a book 
whose noble scenes will draw the eye to flow, if you read it correctly. In fact, many of you will know that Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. Uh, He's often undone, uh, often languishing in tears. In fact, uh, a little bit later in the book, Jeremiah will cry out, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. In other words, uh, he cries himself dry, and his only real lament is that he wishes that his head was this ever-running sort of freshwater spring so that the, the fountains of his eyes would never stop crying. Why? He says, I would weep day and night for the slain amongst my people. The book tells you, in the first three verses, where it is set. And if you know your history, you know that Jeremiah is set through for the last four rulers of Jerusalem. The last four rulers for Jerusalem just go parading across uh, in terms of history. Very little attention is given to them in, in the historical books, and their reigns are actually pretty short. They're just puppet leaders. They were sort of put up at, at the, at the, uh, in the interest of the superpowers of the day. Babylon is on the ascendancy. Babylon is the nation that's going to put an end to Jerusalem and the temple. Jeremiah, for decades, is appointed as the prophet of God to warn the people, if you don't repent, the city is going to fall. God is going to raise up the Babylonians. There's going to be destruction and chaos that you cannot imagine. And Jeremiah sees it coming. And he preaches and no one listens. And as a result, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes were fountains of tears, I would weep day and night. Those that can pity here, if they think it well, let fall a tear. The subject will deserve it. The book of Jeremiah is a subject that deserves tears. The book's also, this is just one quick structural thing off to the side, uh, the book is also not to be read just in sequence. That is, it's a collection of smaller writings that are not haphazardly put together, but you can't just read Jeremiah 1 through 52 as if that's the sequence in which some of these things were taking place. So if you go through the book, you'll find a dislocation of material. Some material which obviously chronologically comes earlier is near the end of the book. Some of the things that come later are in the middle and at the beginning of the book. So you need to sort of sort it out uh, as you go. Uh, But nonetheless, these are representative of the words of the Lord that kept coming to Jeremiah, the messages that he had in the circumstances that he found himself in. Now, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile, at the end of verse 3, one of the things that you know, as we've been working through the Bible together, we've talked about this numerous times, being kicked out of the promised land was the climactic covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28. It was an undoing of everything that had happened up until then. Uh, Abram was called out of pagan idolatry in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. So Abram is called out of Babylon, given the covenant, all they have all the subsequent history where they're in the promised land, now there's temple, there's monarchy, there's all of these things, priests, etc., etc., prophets, and, and with all this rich covenant legacy, the people reject God. And God sends them back to Babylon. But they're right back to where they started from, right back to Genesis 12. 
All of that history undone in a shot, back to where you began. But it's worse. Because Abraham was called out of pagan idolatry. He didn't know any better. He hadn't experienced anything else. But the children of Israel had sinned flagrantly in spite of all that God had done for them throughout all of those years, including the exodus from Egypt. Now back into exile, removed from the promised land. This means that Jeremiah is a prophet during a very volatile and difficult and painful time. It's the nadir point in Israel's history. This is where they hit absolute, utter rock bottom. And Jeremiah is the one who's commissioned to be the prophet, speaking the word of the Lord at this time. Now, one of the things that this should remind us of is that we do not get to choose the times in which we live. There's no way anyone who's called to be a prophet of God, if they're allowed to pick the time in which they serve the Lord, picks this time. No one would ever do that. It's the worst time to be a prophet ever. And Jeremiah also, as we'll see later, is an extraordinarily sensitive individual. And so it's almost like he is the least, he, he's, he's, his whole personality is designed for the opposite of this. But this is what he gets. And it basically destroys him. You'll remember in, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, when Frodo the ring bearer, says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish that none of this had ever happened. Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for them to choose. And he goes on to say, the only thing you can do, the only choice that you really have, is to choose what you will do with the times that you are given. In Ecclesiastes, it says, Do not ask, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. But some of us can't help it. Some of us can't help but just wish that there was another century or another time in which we could live. Uh, just, just, just not this, God. Why, why this time? Why this set of circumstances? Why, why this society? Why this set of issues? that's not your choice. You don't get to choose the day of your birth. You don't get to choose the century in which you're born. You don't get to choose the global events in which you will be born into and those that you will see. But one of the amazing things about this text is that although it reminds us we can't possibly choose our times, the Lord chooses us. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Formed in the womb is obviously God creating and crafting Jeremiah to be the person that he wants him to be. Genetics, time, environment, everything that Jeremiah is, God is, is building. He, he, he's He's in the DNA of Jeremiah. He's knitting him together. You remember, obviously, that very famous image, imagery in Psalm 139, where God is, is, is like a seamstress putting together 
the child, even in the womb, forming the body in the depths of the earth. Now, obviously, you're mixing metaphors there, uh, but, but forming, the body, forming the body in the depths of the earth, in this most secret place. God is the one making us to be who he wants us to be. I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, knew you, some version will translate this, I chose you. There's, there's an overlap, actually, in the semantic range of the word. But the idea is this. The Hebrews' knowledge uh, was, was often uh, relational. So in Genesis, you'll be told, Adam literally knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Well, there's, there's, there's some sort of knowledge of it that's more than just mere acquaintance of facts. Right? So knowledge allows for conception in that context. Knowledge is highly relational. And so when God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, this actually becomes also the controlling understanding in, in Romans 8, where those God foreknew. It's not just that he was aware that people would exist. It's that he entered into a preordained relationship with them. He, there was an intimacy in God's relationship with his people before the foundations of the world. Before I made you, I knew you. That is, the relationship God has with you is prior to your conception. The relationship God has with you is prior to you in time-space history. In fact, eh, logically, in, in terms of theology, we want to say this, we want to insist on this. The only reason there's a you to know is that God formed you to be the you he wanted. Eh, he wanted to be in a relationship with precisely you, so he made you that way. Before I even started making you, I knew you. Before I even began uh, to form you together, before you were even conceived in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, I had known you. I had chosen to have a relationship with you. And before you were born, I set you apart. God says, Jeremiah, listen. I loved you before you existed in time, space, history. In eternity past, you have been in my mind and in my heart. Before you were born, I had a job for you. I made you for the job I wanted you to discharge. I appointed you, Jeremiah, the one that I know, as a prophet to the nations. Now, this is exciting. Prophet to the nations. That sounds like the sort of job description which doubtlessly will win you plaudits and fame, maybe fortune if you're lucky, but it's certainly going to be some sort of a highly intense, it'll be a highly intense spiritual experience. We'll just be spiritual high after spiritual high, walking in the power of the Lord, dwelling in the Spirit of God, receiving the Word of God, going to the nations. I mean, this is, this is exciting. Jeremiah feels a little bit overwhelmed. Alas, sovereign Lord, this is amazing. This is an amazing response. So often we wouldn't articulate it this way, but so often it's our response, sort of uh, implicitly or tacitly, to what God tells us in his word. We basically, he says, oh Lord, that's great. You formed me, you know me. Before I was born, you set me apart, you appointed me as a nation. Alas, like that's your plan. But unfortunately, sovereign Lord, the one who controls the universe, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. And he was a young man. But youth and inability are not excuses when God calls you to something. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. 
you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. This is what a prophet does. This is what someone who's called by God does. God says, go there, and they go. God says, say this, and they say it. Because you don't get to choose your times. And you also don't get to choose your location. God chooses that for you. And there always must be a balance between putting down roots and living lightly in the soil where we're planted. Because God has places for us to be, things for us to do, and things for us to say. And we have to go wherever he sends us. We have to say whatever message he puts in our mouth. Do not be afraid of them. Fear is a very natural human emotion, but don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. Now that, if you're being thoughtful, is wonderful, and also terrifying. I will be with you and rescue you. Well, well God, um, your presence is wonderful. What do I need rescue from? You know, where's the fine print in this contract? I mean, all of a sudden, I, I'm, an, I'm a prophet, and you're making me be a prophet, and now you need to rescue me. I'm not sure I love the circumstances. I'm a little bit worried, and you just told me not to be afraid, which actually is designed to make me terrified. So what do you want from me? Then the Lord reaches out, and says, listen, I have put my words in your mouth. My goodness. The hand of God. I have put my words in your mouth. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. These are gardening and architectural images. Uproot the plants, tear down the buildings. Destroy, overthrow. The accent is on the destruction, the tearing down because of the society that he's in. But there is also a slight accent at the end on being constructive. Also to build. There will be some who will be built up through your ministry. Most will be torn down. There will be some who will be built up. You will be mainly weeding. You will be mainly uprooting. There are invasive species to clear out. But there will also be some fruitfulness to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now, in Hebrew, the word for almond and the word for watch are very similar. So it's a play on words here, which we don't pick up in our English translations. I see an almond tree. That's right. You see an almond tree. I see it. You know, this is utterly dreadful. It'll help you get the point. If we had a tree called a watching tree, or, or if we called almonds watches, you know, that would be sort of the, the English equivalent. Uh, look, what do you see? I see a watching tree. That's right, Jeremiah, because I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. God is the one, Jeremiah. It's not your words. Don't worry if I come on side with your agenda. Jeremiah, I have no interest in fulfilling your messages at all. So I'm giving you my messages. And I'm going to watch them. You're not responsible for seeing that they're fulfilled. You're responsible for delivering them. I am the one who is responsible to make sure that my word is fulfilled. I am the one who is watching to ensure it. What do you see? A pot that is boiling, tipping towards us from the north. 
Lord says it's from the north that disaster is going to be poured out. The Babylonians are going to come from the north. It's like if Canada was under the judgment of God and Canada was going to be destroyed. Oh, what do you see? I I see a, a gun pointing towards us from the south. God says, yeah, the disaster's coming from the south. We'd all know precisely sort of the, the, the political reference to that. The same here. They know precisely this is where disaster is coming from. Disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm out to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They'll come against all her surrounding walls, against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and worshiping what their hands have made. Two sins. Jeremiah will, in another place, very quickly, actually, in this book, God will say, listen, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they are preferring cisterns that they've dug themselves, cisterns that are cracked and cannot hold water. The idea is, God offers you the refreshing, pure water from a source that will not go dry. That's what he offers you. You decide you don't want that. You decide you're going to forsake the source of living water, and you're going to dig your own mud puddles, you're going to coat it with lime, and then that lime's going to crack, so that even that cistern that you've, that you've built to hold the stagnant water is going to, isn't even going to contain the water that's being poured into it. So not only is it stagnant water, it's not even a container that's actually holding it. And over here, right here, living water. An inexhaustible source, pure and clean. It's like being able to drink from a pure stream-fed well and drinking rain that's been sitting in a rain barrel for, for months and months and months. God says, that's what you're doing. You've forsaken life for this. You've forsaken me for other gods. You've forsaken me for the things your hands have made. So get yourself ready, Jeremiah. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. This plays in a very common idea in the Bible. You are probably going to be terrified by someone. The only question is who? The book of Revelation makes it very clear that you will face someone's wrath. Not facing wrath is not a human option. You will either face the wrath of the dragon as he goes off to make war against the children of the church, or you will face the wrath of the lamb when he comes in the day of judgment. But no one is not facing wrath. That's not an option. That's the option we would choose. That would be the tertium quid that we would be very happy to occupy. But it's it's just not there. You will face someone's wrath. It will be the wrath of the dragon or the wrath of the lamb. You will be terrified. You will be terrified before people or God will terrify you. It's one of the two. You have to determine who you're going to trust. If you fear God, 
then you will not necessarily, you will not need to find yourself terrified, but you will still fear. So this is an equivocal sense. Fear God. If you don't fear and honor God, you'll be terrified by people, and then God will terrify you before those people. So you learn to fear God first. You, you put him first. You do what he wants you to do. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. Against the kings, officials, priests, and people. Bronze, fortified tower, iron. There's not much comfort here. Except that God can make you as strong as he needs you to be to what he calls you to face. Jeremiah, you are going to need to be iron and bronze and a fortified city. Truthfully, truthfully, none of us want to hear that. None of us want to hear you are going to be surrounded in circumstances that are so difficult they would overwhelm and destroy you unless you are iron, bronze, and a fortified city. Who picks that? Who chooses those times? Who chooses those circumstances? Who chooses those life events? No one. God never promises to exempt us from trial, but he promises he can make us strong enough to go through them by his grace. The whole world's against Jeremiah. The kings. And honestly, honestly, in the sort of petty monarchies that they have, where sort of the superpowers start coming in, the king's word is life and death. The king can do anything to you he wants. Kings are against you. That's utterly terrifying. The priests, the religious world is against you. The academy is against you. You The the professors are against you. The economists are against you. The army is against you. Everyone is against you. Jeremiah, aren't aren't you glad that I formed you for this? Uh, Isn't it great to be known by me? Aren't you glad before you were born I set you apart for this? Happy Thanksgiving. And just in case you're not sure what I'm saying, Jeremiah, let me remove the contingency. Exactly. I thought, that was a, I thought that was a clever way of checking those ideas, too. They will fight against you. There's no if. There's no contingency at all. The whole world will array itself against you, and they will fight. But they will not overcome you, for I am with you, and will rescue you. The second time God said that. I am with you, I will rescue you. And at this point... Doubtless, Jeremiah doesn't want to do this. He doesn't. He just doesn't. In fact, 
listen to this. I'm not going to tell you where it is. You'll have to read the book to find it yourself. And you can't just hunt and look for it. You can't just you can't read randomly in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Psalms has more chapters, but Jeremiah has more words. So your odds of finding this randomly are not high. Jeremiah's been a prophet for a while. This is what he says. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have committed my cause, or to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Listen to this. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. And in discharging that task, Jeremiah wishes he was never even born. Why wasn't I killed in the womb? Why did God bring me out into this life, into this time, into this calling. Those who may think it well may let fall a tear. The subject will deserve it. It does. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? This, this, this glorious call of a prophet to the nations who wishes he was dead. And, and he, he says, Lord, I don't want to do this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't come to you and say, you know what? I'd really like to be born as a prophet of the nations. I didn't ask for this. You deceived me. You, you, you forced me into this. And then this one agonizing verse, which, which perhaps some of you can relate to, even in some ways, he says, he resolves, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to be a prophet anymore. I'm done. 
I'm done, God. Here's my resignation. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is like in my heart, like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. What God has done is God has put his words in Jeremiah. And if Jeremiah doesn't let them out, they're going to consume him from the inside and he's going to die. The agony of trying to hold in the word of God is such that he cannot do it. Literally and physically, it is painful to him and he has to let it out. The only relief is in releasing the word of God, sharing the message of God. He's a prophet because God made him to be a prophet. Even on the days when he doesn't want to be one. That's what he is. So what do we do with that? Really? And, and who picks that message for Thanksgiving? Honestly. Well, it falls into a common theme, though. Paul also set apart from the womb. Galatians 1.15 God appointed me to be an apostle from the womb. Set apart from the womb. How, how great was the ministry of Paul? But how much agony? John the Baptist. Oh, you read Luke 11 and, and, and Luke 1 and 2. It's, it's filled with rejoicing and joy and song. Verse after verse after verse. Elizabeth and Zechariah impossibly now going to have a child. And, and oh, it's rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. And John the Baptist, what a child. The prophet of the Messiah who prophesies even in the womb when, when Elizabeth is pregnant and Mary shows up pregnant. And John the Baptist leaps in the womb testifying even before they're born. That's the Messiah right over there. It's an amazing thing. Oh, wouldn't you love John the Baptist filled by the Spirit in the womb? Wouldn't you love, love to have a child like that filled by the Holy Spirit in the womb? And we all say yes. Oh, to be able to, to have a ministry like that, to have, to have children who grew up that empowered by the Spirit. And, and how do you feel when, when that, that son's head is on a silver platter being given to Herod because of his ministry? Oh, you're going to bear the Christ, Mary. And she didn't understand fully, of course, at that time in the ministry of Jesus. She didn't understand fully until after the resurrection. But oh, you're going to bear... This is your, all the hopes of the world are in you, Mary. Oh, what's this child going to be? What's this child going to be? Oh, who doesn't want that? But how does she feel when she sees her son nailed to a cross? Beaten and rejected and hated and scorned. But the reality is, it's through precisely that, that there's hope and there's life. It's through the cross, it's through the suffering of Christ. Jeremiah was a bronze wall, an iron pillar, a fortified tower. But in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus, knowing that he's going to the cross, when he turns to Jerusalem, he sets his face like a flint. God strengthens him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, with all the agony, with sort of that, that almost Jeremiah-type, Lord, if there's any other way possible, let, it, let this cup pass from me. Not this way. Not this. Anything but this. This is the one thing. I can't do this. I can't, I can't walk this road. I can't. 
the angels came and strengthened him. No. No, my son, the whole world will fight against you, but I am with you. The religious establishment, Jesus, hates you. The political authorities will condemn you to death. The people of the land will despise you. But I am with you. I will rescue you. And he does. He rescues him not by exempting him from death, but he rescues him through death. Resurrection life comes through death. And God is able to make you strong enough to experience even the agony of death and to come out the other side in love and life, in glorification, to live in perfection and and love, to live in love forever. That's where we're going. That's what God has for us. There's no... Oh, but there's no promise it's going to be pretty in this world. There's no promise that every day is going to be wonderful in this world. But God is more than enough. God will give you what you need. Here's the proof. The proof is that God can give, bring resurrection out of death. And through this cross and resurrection we also share an eternal life. This is the great promise. God is with you. God can deliver you. God can rescue you through union with his Son. We're going to remember our Lord and celebrate communion together. I'm going to ask you to just take a few moments uh, to bow in prayer. Uh, the Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows your mind. The Lord knows what you need, your circumstances, and all of the rest. Just to pray. And as we don't ask the gentlemen to come forward, uh, who are going to help distribute uh, communion this morning.